Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and my guest today is Dr. Amar Rugani, leadership mentor and former Sheffield GP, former Royal College of General Practitioners examiner and blueprinting clinical lead. Co-author with Joanna Bircher of The Leadership Hike, Shaping Primary Care Together. You can find him on Twitter at Amar Rugani, that's A-M-A-R, R-U-G-H-A-N-I. Amar, welcome. Thank you, Chris. You've spent your entire career as a GP. At what point in your journey did you take an interest in leadership? Gosh, well, there's a sort of direct answer to that, and there's a slightly more indirect one. (laughs) Um, You mentioned that I've been a GP all my professional life. So I was involved in education and assessment. And it may surprise people to know that actually general practice didn't really become a specialty in its own right in terms of having a compulsory what we call licensing examination like other specialties until comparatively recently, about 2007. So I was involved with with shaping that, if you like, helping to define what the indefinable is, you know, what is general practice in all its forms. We, We think of ourselves very much as being holistic practitioners, which is just a posh way of saying that I really feel that I engage with people first and foremost, rather than disease systems or lab tests and so on. So as you can appreciate, understanding people and understanding humanity is the the core of what we do. Um, And as part of that, the medical fraternity decided that actually leadership was clearly important but um, was almost an expectation of colleagues it wasn't something that was defined or taught but because I was in that position of if you like trying to define general practice and the assessments that go with it it became a, a, a point of very practical and urgent concern that we actually look at leadership and try and define it to the to the extent that we were then able to teach it now, I have to say the journey I've been on since then has, has shown me that actually it's neither definable nor probably teachable. But nevertheless, the journey has been really interesting. So as an educator, yeah, since about 2007, I've been very concerned to try and identify what or learn more about leadership. I recognised, like a lot of people, I had, I had views sometimes quite strong views on leadership, but actually relatively little knowledge and certainly almost no knowledge about any evidence relating to what makes an effective leader and and, and what doesn't. Um, I suppose the more tangential response to your question of when did I become interested was sort of reflecting on my interaction with patients. So, you know, in that that sort of sanctus sanctorum of being with a patient and, and being connected to to their problem, their suffering, trying to work together to to try and identify what the nature of the problem is, where it might be coming from, trying to work cooperatively, collaboratively, if we can, with patients to find a way forward, recognising that this is very uncertain terrain, that we can't always guarantee a cure, if that's the word we use, but we can certainly work towards some improvement in our life experience. And we can do it by giving each other confidence, that I as a doctor can give them confidence that whatever the problem, we can try and find a way through it. 
the patient can give me confidence that they have some degree of commitment to, to wanting to to change you know the, the, the problem that they've come with those things um, are absolutely germane to to the art of leadership so in many ways looking back at it I think I've been interested and involved in leadership with a small L um, throughout my professional life and I think actually more widely anybody and to me it feels like a human need I would describe it as a human need people have a need once they are sentient to contribute to the communities they care about and those communities can be friendship communities very powerfully there will be family communities as well as the workplace I've not yet met anyone who doesn't want to do something that maybe is in some way helpful or in some way they feel is valued by the people that they care about. So any of us that find ourselves in that position, um, the art of leadership, what it takes to help people move forward, is I think an important part of being human. So moving on to your book, I found it brilliant, easily one of the best books I've read on leadership. It doesn't try to oversimplify or mystify the subject, but it's comprehensive, down-to-earth, and I think relevant not just to primary care, but to any team-based environment. What motivated you to write The Leadership Hike? Well, Chris, thank you for extremely kind comments, and I should point out to people we have not met before and I haven't prompted you to say anything along those lines. Um, I should also point out that the we is very much Joanna Bircher and myself, so I'm here representing her um, as well. We could not have done it without each other. What prompted me to do writing? Well, I suppose I was the the, the lead person in this. The, the, the passion and instigation did come from me. What motivated me was that I felt I had to do it. So, <laughs> as I've explained, for for practical reasons, I, I was charged with looking into you know the nature of leadership and so on. I want to just describe a little story that was written by Isaiah Berlin who drew, drew a distinction between people as hedgehogs and people as foxes. So we don't need to go into too much detail, but he was pointing out that some people seem to be um, scurrying hither and thither. They're often quick-witted, sharp, bright, interested people who wander widely, make connections and seem to be able to, to shape things at, at, at one level. There are other people who really don't have a clue so much as to those things that to them appear more on the surface and they're drawn more to try and establish what the deeper features are of what turns out to be a complex problem. Now clearly both are needed but I would describe myself as being more of a hedgehog. So I'm the sort of person who is naturally drawn towards trying to understand the deeper features if possible to identify if there is any meaning within what appears to be quite a complex but to to me significant aspect of life. So I found that when I was reading, I I was reading things that that were either written by foxes for foxes that were full of sort of skills, ideas, tips, do this and you'll become a leader and so on. There was relatively little coherence between various people's top 10 tips. Um, There was often little connection with the deeper features of meaning, purpose, the why, if you like. Um, and there were other people who'd come at it from a very philosophical stance, and they were almost the opposite. So there was a good deal of contemplation, a degree of introspection, 
an honesty about the the rather confusing and amorphous nature of what we were considering, but a real struggle to try and identify whether this this actually mattered. Where they, in quotes, fell down, and I'm not trying to criticise here, I'm commenting just from a personal perspective, was that I found those people, because of the approach that they took, did not help me to, to find a path between those ruminations and practical application to not only thinking and feeling, but also changing behaviour in a way that might make help me to live a better life. I also found that what I was reading was out of context, and I don't think I'd have understood that as clearly at the time. So I don't talk in terms of good and bad leadership, I talk in terms of effective and less effective leadership. And I think that we can make a good argument that effective leadership is, is quite dependent upon context. So a lot of the books that I came across, which were often from the business community, Harvard and so on, you know, are very open about this, they would be promoting um, things such as positional power, control, personal achievement, personal reward, as all things being both legitimate and powerful motivators. They didn't really resonate with me because I come from a different community. Primary care is different and it's got an important value base. By the way, it's not more important than, say, the business community. It's just different. Um, and in primary care, our values are more those of compassion, community, engaging with complexity and uncertainty and not trying to pretend it isn't there. And a degree of openness and honesty with people that we will try, even if we can't guarantee that we'll succeed. Those values are very important. And it, and it felt to me very important that anything that we tried to, to put forward to the profession would have to resonate with values that, that many of us had come in on the basis of, you know, as teenagers and so on, and had um, implicitly signed up to as, as, as professional practitioners. So that difference in the approach that people took between theory and practice and philosophy or less philosophy, that difference in context and so on, meant that what I was reading didn't speak to me and didn't make me feel that what I was reading mattered, which is why my opening comment to you, Chris, was I, I felt I had to do it because I couldn't find anything out there that, that said what I felt we we needed to say. I mean, the book itself, You Are the Leader of a Compassionate Leadership Movement, the, the book itself is, is totally an exercise in compassionate leadership. Now, I know that you've read it, so most of our listeners will not yet, I hope, have done, but the book, what was going through our mind was that we wanted to be honest about the fact that we don't have the answers. We wanted to, to, to translate to people that we feel this really matters. We wanted to people to feel that they really matter, every one of them really matter, and that what they can do to help their communities matters hugely for the whole world. Although we've shaped it around primary care, we think it extends more generally than that. We think it extends to everyone. And we wanted, to, we wanted people not just to read, but we wanted them to feel. So the book is, I hope, emotionally intelligent, to use the jargon. I hope people feel that here are people, here are authors who are trying to connect with them, even though we can't speak to them, that we want to accompany them, which is why we called it a hike. This isn't something that's already mapped out. This is a journey of some endeavour 
but with great possibility and great opportunity, both individually and collectively. And we wanted them to know that we care about them, hence the compassionate part of the book. So we hope that it's suitably challenging because we don't think that compassion is independent of, of challenge. But we see it as being absolutely an exercise in what we hope that, uh, and if you like to a degree, mirrors what we hope people will do with their own communities. In the book, you say, maybe we should ask ourselves whether if we rarely feel uncomfortable or need to use our courage, we are actually engaging in leadership at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why okay. would you say that? <laughs> yeah, that's a provocative statement, isn't it, really? Yeah. Well, I, th I think that leadership does actually require us to be courageous. So looking back on it, I think that when we're engaged with the process of trying to, to make change happen, part of the start of it is that we're willing to stick our neck up. You know, these we're, we're, we're willing to hold our heads above the parapet. And they, that may come not from any desire to be a leader, but because the genesis of this is that we've noticed that there's a problem and we care enough, the compassion part, to actually say so. Now, do you know, those two things are far rarer in real life than, than you would assume. People, we all do, have all sorts of ways of not noticing what is blindingly obvious if pointed out to people who are brave enough to say it. There are so many examples, but you know, the Black Lives Movement, the Black Lives Matter movement at the moment, or climate change, you know, none, none of these things really are a complete mystery or a surprise to anyone. Um, we know it, and we know that the roots are, are ancestral for both of them. Um, and when people say it, that there are many emotions, but, but surprise is usually not one of them. So the, the genesis is, is, is important, and sticking your head above a parapet is a, is a risky endeavour, especially, especially in the modern world. And particularly if you engage in any form of social media activity, sadly, it does bring out the worst of what people are capable of and we need to be careful. So I think in the book, we're, we're, we are careful to point out that you know, courage is, is necessary, but so is intelligence. So, so we point out that one can be intelligently courageous, you know, to choose the way in which we, we, we intend to do that. There are times when actually you are less intelligent because you're just driven by the passion sometimes of the moment. And that is powerful and important. You know, not everything that we do that, that is significant can be predetermined. But that's part of where the courage, why the courage is necessary. It's also necessary if we think about the hikers analogy. I use hikers, by the way, Chris, because like you, I live in the I live very close to the Peak District, so it's in my it's in my blood, really. Um, and I'm just thinking about you know when I go for a ramble. And, you know, I'm so grateful to the leaders who came before me because those people established paths, later signposts that show us where a foot, public footpath is or annoyingly should be. But those footpaths uh, are there because there have been leaders who've come before who have mapped out and navigated and explored and taken the risk and found a route that actually helps us all. If we're walking on terrain and, in quotes, all we're doing as leaders 
is to find the footpaths and say, well, here is a way to achieving that ascent, you know, to reaching that tour and so on. Then we are map reading and navigating more than we are leading. If we're trying to carve out a new path, we are saying with a group, and this is a collective exercise, if the group collaboratively feel that actually we want to explore, we imagine, wonder, muse on what might be beyond that horizon. We are interested in what the experience of journeying together might bring us and teach us and so on. We want to map out an unknown world and maybe bring uh, a better way of, of existence into operation that we partly create or maybe hadn't dreamt of. Those are the areas in which leaders can help people to have the confidence that we can move forward and we can use tools. There's a section in the book about adaptability that gives a lot of examples around that. We can anticipate the weather. We can use the skills within the group. We can say we're pretty much guaranteed not to fall off the edge of this, even in the fog, because we have intelligence and between us we can look out and make sure that we take the appropriate steps. So those are activities in which leadership leadership actually operates. And as you can tell, you know, exploring the unknown, just some of the things I've said in the last few moments, uh, they require courage, as well as the ability to map read and say, well, actually, we are carving this out, but for part of the journey, we can take a shortcut with a path that people have shown us before. So let's use our navigation skills as well. So courage is part of it. I mean, I suppose my final point is, that coming back to you know my real world or anyone's real world of practicing leadership, if we can nurture in us the appreciation that actually we really don't want to not take that risk, we don't want to live with the consequences of not having tried. You know that would be that would be the worst case scenario for us. If we can learn to nurture that, then if you like taking those difficult steps becomes almost a matter of routine. It's what we have to do. We sort of don't give ourselves a choice. We have to do it, which means that actually we are we don't feel ourselves as having to be courageous. It's part of the territory. It's part of what we do. And therefore, it doesn't actually feel quite as brave. We don't have to psych ourselves up to the level of actually taking a bravery pill in order to do it. A lot of what we do may be seen by and may be commented by other people as being courageous, but actually to us, it's something we feel that's within our capacity to do without necessarily feeling fearful. One of my favourite observations in the book is, it is humbling to appreciate that so much of what differentiates people who are given higher or lower status by society is not determined, for example, by genetics or talent, but by resources, opportunity and support. Why do you think it's important to point that out to aspiring leaders? Um, I suppose I say that because the more we see ourselves as an elite, by virtue of our privileges and so on that we've enjoyed, the more we see ourselves as that elite, the more disconnected we'll become from the people that we, that we serve. So this is this is really a you know a comment on on status. I guess that we feel that leadership skills are really in two main dimensions. You know they're to do with they're to do with an approach with people and to an approach with tasks. And we actually 
need both. Clearly, you need to be competent with with tasks. You need to be intellectually aware. You need to do a number of things like be able to talk and convince people and and so on. You need to be able to interpret data and and so on and so on. There are many tasks that that leaders do that are important and necessary to be competent. The people dimension, I think, is is, is actually far harder. Um, And that's to do with people feeling willing to connect with you. Um, And I'd say willing to connect because very often we are working with people who may be um, in our employ, for example. They may be people who have to do things because that's required of them by their job description. That's what they get paid for and so on. My belief is that an experience is that that's just the starting point. Really significant things move forward when people start to give their, what we would call their discretionary effort. When people come to you and say, you know, that was really interesting what so-and-so did, or I've seen a problem and I've been looking into it and I'm just wondering about this or that. And I've heard from a local practice down the road that they actually triage their patients in a different way, or they've had some really good experience from the elderly because of the way that that practice is able to connect with them. And I wondered whether we could bring something here. All those sort of things indicate that people are moved to the degree that they want to spend their, in quotes, free or discretionary time actually thinking of something and working on something that could be collectively important for all of us. Now, they are not going to do that unless they feel that 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 is welcomed, um, that they are going to be supported in some way. Moving further down the line, it helps enormously if they feel that that you will not only support them, but maybe give them some resource, maybe acknowledge the work that they put in and so on, and possibly even reward them in some way. These are all ancillary things, if you like, that make people feel connected. But the, the start of it all is that they, they don't feel that you are above them in the sense that you look down on them or talk down to them. And both of those things happen almost routinely and often implicitly if the status gap between leaders and others is too great um, in the leader's favour, if I can put it that way. So that's why we feel the gap is important for people to to understand. So I think we'd say, look, the status, as with all things, if things are there, they're often there because there is a reason for it or because they, they, they persist in being useful. The status is is helpful, uh, particularly early on in life, when you don't have the, the life experience and the insight to understand that actually the, the status is a form of armour, which although protective at the start, actually disconnects you from people. And when you start to realise that, you start to take pieces of this chain mail and this armour and so on off because you realise that you no longer need it. But until that phase is reached, the armour of status is, is, is actually necessary. So we wouldn't be saying to people, this is a bad thing, you shouldn't have it. There are reasons for it. I've mentioned a couple there. But be aware and look out for the time when actually you don't need that so much. And then look to see and talk to colleagues, particularly those who are more experienced, and often that means older. Talk to people about how they navigated that phase and moved to a situation where they didn't need the armour either at all or as frequently. Um, Once people start to see that you are shedding that, and they'll know that not by anything that you say, 
you know, in saying, look, I no longer, I no longer demand um, that you defer to me or treat me in a, in a exalted way. We do not say that because that, in a perverse way, that's still a sign that status matters too much to you. But it's by our behaviour. If we include people, if we naturally talk to them in all the sort of communication ways of, for example, see, looking at them eye to eye, decreasing the physical gap and so on between us, giving people time and interest, following it up to show that we've not only listened or we've understood and we're prepared to commit to it in some way. Those are the things that say to people, I think you think I'm important. Maybe down the line, they'll start to feel, I don't feel any different from you. That would be a wonderful thing to experience because that approaches a sense of equality. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to be simplistic about this. You know, we, we don't live and maybe don't seek to live in an equal world. But I would hope to work towards a fairer world where people have more of an equality of opportunity with the things that they can express themselves through. And I think about the final point I'd make about why I'd want to, to, to have discussions about status is that that understanding of status that leads on to um, a deliberative reduction in the status gap, that, that usually doesn't happen by those with lower status rectifying the problem. It may do through big societal movements and processes of revolution, but on a day-to-day basis, it, it usually happens more effectively by, by those who have the advantage seeking to reduce the, their perceived power influence, if you like, over others. So if you like, it, it, it's beholden to us to instigate that process once we not only understand it, but feel that actually it's something that we want to commit ourselves to doing something about. You say that our greatest potential for developing our most useful contributions lies not in the areas where we are weak, but in the areas where we are already strong. Would you like to say more about that? So I can give you an example from the medical community, but I'm sure this is replicated particularly in many professional groups. And that is that when you have any form of appraisal, so as doctors, we have to have that every year. And also people undergo what they would call performance review, for example. So an, an important and, and almost untalked about part of that process is that people will have something pointed out which they are good at. And if you like, there's a, there's a little pat on the back, you know, well done, keep going. And then the, 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 the mentor or interviewer will spend a considerable amount of time and will have expected the interviewee to have spent a considerable amount of time thinking about where they're falling down, what they're not so good at. And the implication is that you're going to spend a lot of time and energy attending to those things. So I think the eye-opener for me was reading the work of the Gallup organisation who wrote a book called Strengths Finders. So they have the world's largest database on effectiveness, particularly in middle management. And they found that the people who are the most effective in terms of being highly productive a number of indices, not just productivity, but ability to get on with, to get on with colleagues, uh, to to help others to be effective as well as themselves. The ability also to be good role models and so on. These were linked to to people who were able to connect with what they seem to be singularly good at. So there's always there's always more that meets the eye. So when I say singularly good at, 
what I'm what I mean is that, and this is just my understanding, that that each of us is unique. We sort of it's a bit of a trope, really, but um, I would I would say that we are unique in terms of our perspectives, insights, values, skills, passion, drive. Those things, and that particularly that combination of things, is unique to 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 each of us. And as a group, we are at our, our strongest when we can actually engage those very strong elements of what people have to give. So a couple of the arts of leadership are having enough interest, which comes through the compassion part, having enough interest to actually find out what the strengths of people are. And then, and this is the great joy of leadership, creating those opportunities and supporting people to actually engage with those strengths and to apply them. That isn't always easy because people don't always want to or recognise that that actually they would be more effective if they did. Um, so, so, so that's an interesting exercise. But these the strengths, the, the, this understanding of strengths, it doesn't excuse us from the inexcusable, meaning that it doesn't mean that we have carte blanche to be incompetent. We don't. So as a doctor, I have to be, I mentioned leadership in terms of people and tasks, I have to be competent or good enough in both. If I was absolutely outstanding at my people connection, but actually less than competent in the the mechanics and the technicalities and so on of my medical art, then I would not be a safe practitioner. I would not deserve to be licensed for independent practice, as we call it. And the same the other way around. If I was extremely technically good, but not good with people, that would also be a problem. To translate that into leadership terms, as a leader, if I was very good with connecting, but actually had very poor skills, then people would be inspired by me and would choose to work with me and collaborate, but they'd quickly find that we'd fail because I didn't have the technical skills to take it further. They'd then lose confidence and not have the confidence to connect with me down the line. If it was the other way around, and I was technically quite expert, but actually in terms of people connection, pretty poor, well, they probably wouldn't be energised by me or inspired by, by what I had to share and, 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 and so on and wouldn't choose to collaborate. I don't like the word follow. They wouldn't choose to collaborate with me from the start. So, so that's important. I have to mention, because I think their work is great, um, so there was a, a very good book written by Furnham and Pendleton called rather immodestly, Leadership, All You Need to Know. Now, David Pendleton does tell me that 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 wasn't his first choice as title. However, David and Adrian came up with a a wonderful model um, of leadership called the Primary Colours Model, which I would recommend to people. And the insight that shows me in terms of strength is that we can give us... It is in the book, absolutely. So, (laughs) So you can read there and understand. But... Briefly, one of the great things that it, that, it, that it helped me to understand was that we can give ourselves permission to play to our strengths. We can also give ourselves permission in the areas where we are weakest, in other words, not so talented, to use those as opportunities for other people who are strong in that dimension to bring themselves forward and use that. So, for example, I'm a green person, which in their book would mean I'm a head person. I enjoy thinking. I enjoy visioning, imagining, dreaming, that sort of stuff. Um, or airhead, if you prefer. I've been called that before. (laughs) My weakest is probably blue, 
even though you know I've, I've got enough blue to write a book that takes quite a lot of blue the practical bit that's the hands bit of converting ideas into action but I make it a point to actually work with people who are outstanding in blue uh, because it comes naturally and easily to them they are immediately thinking about the practicalities how do we do this who are the right people to get together how do we organize this to make it happen what's the plan the strategy moving forward where might the milestones be and so on those are blue people and by connecting the people, by using my weaknesses as an opportunity for the strengths of others, that leads to extremely strong teams, you know, to develop in that way. And as long as we make sure that in terms of our group, project group or a community, we have the, the green, the head, the blue, the hands, and the red, which the, the which Pendleton and Furnham define as the emotion people who are very concerned about relationship, the emotional connection with people which, by the way, is not the just the fuzzy, nice bit of being affable and likeable and making tea for people. It, it includes the really tough stuff of being able to negotiate with people, helping people who are in conflict to understand each other's points of view, particularly those who hate each other. And boy, do we need skills like that in the modern world and always have done, by the way. So we need the red, the green and the blue. If we can bring those in, which their, their model helps us to do, quite purposefully, then we can help to design very powerful teams that take whatever project we're interested in forward. So that's partly why I think this idea of strengths is, is, is to me, a game changer. My, my final point on that is that once we feel that we understand strengths enough to make use of it, then I would say to you, be really serious about that. Change your life so that you don't spend the rest of the life that's allotted to you on areas in which you're just not that talented. Leave that for other people. Use what you're gifted in. You know, follow your, your passion, your values, your skills and what you're driven by to give strongly to the world. And when you do, the difference in fulfilment for you, benefit for others is not linear, it's, it's, it's exponential. It's a great insight. You observe that in primary care, our work can be so reactive that there seems to be little time to do much other than firefighting. However, you maintain that it's nonetheless essential to clarify vision and direction. How do you go about accomplishing that in a primary care context? So, unfortunately, vision, Chris, is one of those words that's been rather debased by communities, people often like to use the epithet management communities, and that, and that really is a disservice. Management, which is mostly blue um, in the strengths model, is hugely necessary. So let, let's not rubbish people. But the, the the vision is really important. So Simon Sinek, who, who has a very well-watched TED talk on the why, explains very clearly how it is that great leaders use the why, help people to understand that the why is perpetually important. If we become dissociated from the why, then we quickly start to lose our motivation, which doesn't mean that people stop coming to work, but it does mean that they become disenchanted, they become less tolerant of the problems that they have to deal with, they give much less of their discretionary energy, and they inadvertently sometimes, but not always, but barriers in the way to what we would call progress. So those are the bad things that happen when people become disconnected. Now, I have to say, 
I think medicine is supremely guilty of this, and possibly the NHS more widely. The NHS, as many people have said, is the closest thing the UK has to a national religion, which says something about the parlous state of our spiritual world, but maybe that's another podcast. But I'm thinking here that, um, that the NHS has a very strong set of values. People are very drawn to it. They are drawn on the basis of, of and this is not meant to sound trite, but they're drawn on the basis of wanting to help people. They're often drawn on the basis of people who, who to a degree, can't bear suffering, particularly in others, and that's not meant to be a joke. And they want to do something about that. Now, the thing is that once you come into medical school and onwards, and it doesn't just apply to doctors, that assumption is hardly ever revisited. It's it's very rare for teams to be asked, what do we care about? You know, what do we think we're here for? Are we engaged in the sort of work that is living up to that why? That why effectively defines our meaning and purpose, what people would call sometimes our core vision. And if we neglect it, we, you know, we neglect it at, at our personal peril, but definitely at our, at our group, company, institutions peril. So you've asked, how would I do that in real life? Well, I was a, a GP. I'm still connected very much to that community. But but as a GP, sadly, and I'll fess up to this, I didn't understand the importance of revisiting the why till, till quite late on in my career. Probably helped, Chris, by that interest in leadership, you know, that we talked about and becoming more aware that this was something important and needed, not only thinking about, but changing our behaviour around. So when that happened, I started to both talk personally and encourage my colleagues to talk more personally more openly uh, about the why, checking with people what they felt their why was, which is partly through open conversation. So occasionally, but it is rare uh, to actually get together as a group and you know to, to to check out you know what is it that buzzes you? Are we doing are we doing the right thing? Is the work that we're doing facilitating what we believe is most important? But it's also a matter of keeping your antennae twitching because. The world around you and the people around you are telling you what their why is. They're telling you whether you're connected to it or not. So look to see what people are energised by. Look to see when they seem to come alive. Look to see what it is that makes them go away and come back with ideas and interest and suggestions and so on. They're telling you their why. Look at look at what it is that your colleagues seem to applaud in their colleagues that they talk about over a coffee break, that they seem to be impressed by or moved by. Look at and try to identify who in the community people regard as being role models in a number of ways, not just in medicine, but the sort of people that they take something of that they feel, I wish I could be more like Beverly or I wish I could be more like Raj, and find out what it is about Beverly and Raj that they feel is important. Those things collectively are telling you the why of the organisation. The other explicit thing that we did was through a process we called Fresh Pair of Eyes. So briefly, we believe that people who come from without, in other words, new entrants into our community, are by definition unblinkered or less blinkered uh, than we are. And we ask those people after they've been with us for a month, I mean, we tell them when they join that this is going to happen, to point out something about what they've observed and to come to us with a, 
with questions around, why are you doing this? Why are you doing it this way? Why not try something that I've seen somewhere else that works really well for them? And maybe also because we're not just about criticism of that sort, we also ask them to point out something that they have found really good that they might want to share with other organizations. So that process that we call fresh pair of eyes is actually a way of revisiting your values and attitudes because the discussion that flows around what other people have noticed always impinges upon what we hold dear. You'll find that people will say, oh, that's a good idea, I've never thought of that. Or the contrary, well, that wouldn't work because we've always done it this way and so on. It tells you a lot about their attitudes and by extrapolation, quite a bit about their why. And because we do that, whenever a new person joins the organisation, we found that we, doing it every six months was about right. There was enough of a cluster of people, two or three, that could do this exercise. But it meant that rather than assuming our culture and why is an important and the vision is an important part of that culture, instead of assuming it and just letting it drift until there was a need to do something about it, we revisited it in a planned way every six months on top of the other things that I've mentioned to you. Towards the end of the book, you warn power corrupts and no one is exempt. Those are strong words. Do you think that there are strategies we can adopt, though, to resist the temptation to become grandiose and even abuse our leadership power? I guess there are some questions that I'd ask, but I, I suppose I'd start, Chris, as I said a moment ago in another context about status, in fact. You know, it, it, it's there for a reason. Power is actually useful. So the challenge is, 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 not to, is not to dispense with it or, or talk it down. It, it's to learn where it's useful, where it's less useful, and learn not to overuse it um, or to use it inappropriately. So I suppose I'd ask myself a number of questions in relation to power that might just help me to keep the balance right. Firstly, I'd ask, you know, have I got the balance right in the use of my, in the use of power? I equate, but they're not the same thing. Power and influence are on a similar continuum. And you can't not have an influence. You know, if you are human and you have the capacity to interact, you are by definition going to have an influence on people around you. Power is an expression of that influence, perhaps a more controlling aspect and so on. But the influence that we have has an ethical dimension. And it's interesting because power influence, it has to find a detente between one position in which we overuse it and, if you like, coerce people or control them, which from an ethical point of view is problematic. When I say ethical, I mean within the context of primary care. There are other walks of life in which that would be entirely necessary and appropriate. Uh, and appropriate. So we have to navigate between that position, which to me would be unacceptable, and interestingly, the opposite position, where I say to myself, well, I, I don't want to have any influence on you, Chris. You know, I, I, in quotes, respect you so much that I'm trying, I'm going to try not to influence you at all. Now, I, I sort of equated leadership with, with the work that I do as a doctor with patients. So if I did that in surgery, you know, in consultation with patients, and was so patient-centred that, if you like, I refused to, to make a choice for, for the patient, if you like, that would also be inappropriate. You know, people look to you 
for the influence you have and for that influence to be used in a way that's appropriate and weighted and permissive and so on, used in a way that, that's appropriate and useful to them. So, so we have to... We have to, if you like, have our antennae twitching. If we realize that actually we're trying to find a sweet spot and it'll vary according to the circumstance and the people that we're with, are we using that power and influence appropriately? Keep your antennae twitching and see how it's coming across. So, for example, in the book, actually, we, we talk about this in an interesting way. We talk about trying to observe how people are with us as an indicator of where where we are on that balance. You know, how are people with us? One way in which they're with us is where are they in terms of respecting you versus fearing you, if you see what I mean. If they if they fear you, that is saying something that could be problematic. If they respect you but don't fear you, that is possibly a better position to be in. So again, looking at how people are with you, you can quickly tell whether people are, are frightened by you. Now, I know, you know, there are leaders definitely who would use the fear factor as a way of controlling uh, and a way, if you like, sometimes galvanizing energy and so on. Those are also tools. They are occasionally legitimate. You'd have to read, to read the book to understand how that can be operated in the round. But that's one way. So the first question is, have I got the balance right? That these antennae twitching and giving an idea of where we are in scale gives you a rough idea if the balance is okay. Your question was about how do we try and reduce the temptation to overuse power? So I suppose my next question to myself is to ask myself, how much am I tempted by the trappings of power? My antennae are not just the antennae towards how people react to me, they, they are also the antenna of how I react to particular experiences. So, for example, if people are saying nice things about my book, thank you, that was very lovely. But actually, if people are deferential to me in a, in a way that actually isn't called for, how do I, how do I feel by that, about that? Personally, if I felt that that feels really good and I'd like more of it, um, I would be a bit concerned for reasons that I've touched upon earlier in, in relation to connecting with people and status and so on. But it can it can sneak up on you. I mean, for example, Chris, I did have doctor on my credit card for most of my professional life. When I rang to book dinner for the family, I would call myself Dr. Regani. Um, and it wasn't till later that I mused on why that was. <laughs> it's just actually to me a non-trivial example, but it's a small example of the sort of ways in which we can be lured into feeling that that actually that this is both acceptable, appropriate, and it's what you're entitled to. But I would ask you all, you know, in the context of your own lives, mine may not be an example that means anything to you, but you will have examples of your own, and you'll know in the quality of your own mind those circumstances in which the hold or the leverage that power has over you is perhaps greater than it needs to be. And, and I'd ask you to firstly be open-minded enough to, to perhaps admit to that to yourself. And secondly, if you can have the courage, and you talked about courage earlier on, try and experiment with it. You know, I'm not saying stop it. I'm saying experiment with it. 
if, as I have found, it helps you to connect with people better, not to be too hooked on power, then you will find you are motivated to change the way you behave. So the choice is yours. That's, that's my second question. My third, my third way of reducing power is to remind myself about how remarkable other people are and to learn to put myself in a position where I can value them. And I do that for a very simple reason, because my experience is that the more you value other people, and I don't mean tokenistically, in my world, I mean having given people opportunity or having witnessed what they've done, or have they done something that, that I think is, is valuable you know, to us all? If they have, then they have demonstrated their value. And I accord them the feelings and the respect and so on to go with that. The, the more I learn how valuable people are, the, the less I'm minded to want to exercise any form of power over them. It feels just completely inappropriate. So those are, those are just three ways, um, Chris, in which one, one could sort of mitigate the adverse effects of power whilst recognising that we are in a continuum and it definitely has its place. Thanks, Amar. So now we come to four fairly quick fire questions, Amar, that I ask most people that come on this podcast. And the first okay. is, is there a person or experience that has inspired you on your journey? Absolutely. So I, I hope I'm allowed to mention names. I think I think I can I think I can do because you know it's nice for so it's nice for me able to, to for me to be able to credit um, a gentleman called Pat Lane. So Pat was at the time I was working with him a director uh, in medical education. So he, if you like, was my boss in the region. Um, and there are lots of things we all have. We all have someone, maybe more than one person, that we owe a lot to beyond our, our parents and immediate family. Pat was very much one of those. So. He had a number of qualities that hugely helped me, and I've tried to, in my own way, you know, bring them into my own life. He was a person of great energy and enthusiasm. I think that we all have different degrees of energy. I happen to have quite a lot, but I, I found that when people connect with their strengths, that energizes them. Then they find that they have more energy and more drive than they suspected they would. So, and I also know that health obviously has a part to, to, to play in that. But he had energy and drive. He was also, given that he was, you know, a big boss, titular leader, he was someone who could control. You know, he could direct where things went. He did do that where that was appropriate. But I was aware of the fact that um, I've mentioned I'm a green person, an ideas person. He would encourage ideas. He would encourage people who were who just thought stuff about the future and so on to voice those. And he backed that up with resources. So he was able to think ahead in terms of his resources and put aside resources, personnel, manpower, financial resources, sometimes sometimes time opportunities within a given job description that you had. He was able to create the possibility for people like myself and actually anyone with energy and ideas to make use of that. And that's my next point, that actually I never came across a situation where somebody had energy and ideas and Pat wasn't the first to think straight away, how do we engage that? How do we make use of that? Even if it wasn't in line with, with current work streams, you know, it seemed to be quite removed and so on. It might have been partly his visioning about a greater future, but I don't think it was just that. I think it was that he recognised that 
energy enthusiasm is useful no matter where it comes from and no matter where it goes to. We can shape and direct that. But let's not lose it, you know, when it rears its head. Okay. Is there a book, podcast or video that you'd recommend to aspiring leaders, apart from your own, of course? Oh, well, thank you for mentioning that. (laughs) So, (laughs) So the answer is we would absolutely love people to read The Leadership Hike and that is nothing to do with the money. It's a matter of pence, I can tell you. I actually, and I shouldn't be saying this because the, the, the publishers would crucify me, I would love you to, to buy it and share it with your friends. You know, I don't I don't care about you paying for it, but I do care about you reading it and engaging with it, not just accepting it, but using it to interrogate your own lives and the way you wish to live. So to me, I'm passionate about that book because that's our that's our life's work, if you like, in that. But beyond that, absolutely, there is some I'd recommend. I mentioned Simon Sinek earlier on. So his his talk on how great leaders inspire action is a great TED talk. Another which I hope you, Chris, may have heard of was by Sir Ken Robinson. So Sir Ken was an educationalist. Sadly, he's died now. But I see you shaking your head, so you're going to enjoy this. So he he gave the most amazing TED Talk in 2006 called Do Schools Kill Creativity? And in microcosm there, but actually it's not that micro, is it, when you think about creativity in schools? But he gave an example there of what it is that people have to give. And if you like, creativity um, is just one indicator of the exceptional potential that every human being has. Look at how the world doesn't allow that a voice. That's what I took away from that and the absolute importance of creating opportunity. And by the way, if you want to learn how to pitch or to sell a thought in a way that's engaging, fun, educational, inspiring, I've never seen it done better. So please watch Sir Ken. It's a remarkable TED Talk. And gosh, that man is is, is dearly missed. The third that I would offer you, and this is me as a green person, is uh, Neil McGregor's fantastic series of podcasts, A History of the World in 100 Objects. Because what we're talking about in leadership is how to engage with humanity. Do you need to understand humanity? If I talked to you about diversity, you would have certain views on it. I think having listened to Neil McGregor, and there are only 12-minute podcasts, there are 100 of them, you will you will understand why it's completely inappropriate to, to think of one society, one culture, one geography in the world, or one time in the world's history as being any superior or inferior to another. It's a complete nonsense. And Neil will show you how. So that's why I recommend that. And the book I'd recommend is by... Um, gentleman called Otto Sharma. It's a book called Theory U, and it's subtitled Leading from the Future as it Emerges. It's a wonderful book because what it helped me to understand is that even before understanding something in a way that I could explain to myself or to you, I and you can feel the world emerge. We can feel the future emerge. We have a feeling for how the post-pandemic world could be needs to be. We have a feeling for that. And he translates that into something you can do something about, a quite remarkable achievement. And he talks in terms of the the you, which is the downstroke is all the things you have to understand and let go. And the upstroke is the things that you have to bring in. Last two questions. What does your self-care regime look like? 
The physical side of that is pretty easy. It's been absolutely brilliant during the pandemic. So in some ways, I've never been fitter. Yeah, I've been forced to walk on a daily basis. So I've walked two and a half thousand miles over the last year with my wife. That has been a leadership hike, literally. So our daily routine is probably, we're very privileged because we are both retired now, so we can do this. So I can actually walk every day. I spend a few minutes also doing something with Mr. Motivator on YouTube, which is a workout routine. The great thing is he's called Mr. Motivator for a reason. Just having somebody every day who motivates you, you just hear it, you know, that's really buzzing, that re-energizes. And finally, a a few minutes of yoga, because again, that connects in terms of flexibility of mind and body. I love that. From a spiritual point of view, we haven't talked about much about that today, but to me, it's really important. I talk to a very close friend in Mumbai. So I talk to Rupal maybe every 10 days about what she and I call the we world. So we think of the we world, um, and that's how we describe it to each other, a world where we are all spiritually connected. I don't, by spiritual, I don't mean religious. I, I mean that philosophical, deeper level hedgehog stuff that I was referring to earlier on. And it just reinforces all the time how the collective seems to help and emerge through our everyday lives in practical ways and keeps reinforcing our healthy place in the world, um, a way in which, if you like, our ego is held in useful balance with our outward facedness. And I guess in terms of keeping well, my my regime, I I try to both have fun. This is not an original phrase, but I like it. I try to have fun on a daily basis and I try to be fun. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Well, I, I can't tell him to hang around for 30 years and read the book, really, can I? But I guess what I'd say is that... At 20, I think I understood the difference between speed and haste. I actually quite applauded myself for being um, thorough, but but quick. I was able to get through the work, you know, and do it competently and so on. And that was, a, that, that was good. Uh, I, and I did feel good about that. But I suppose <clears throat> looking back, particularly since I've reappraised life through the leadership journey and what I've learned, and I'm still learning through that, and also the, the, the opportunity that the phase beyond work brings us. I sort of would say to myself that it would be really helpful to just appreciate the moment, um, appreciate what a gentleman called Eckhart Tolle calls the now. And I would say to myself, just, you don't necessarily have to slow down, but just linger, because I'm not sure I would have slowed down at that, at that stage of life. But I would have said to myself, you know, it's great that you get through stuff, but actually just linger a little between the events of each day so that you can learn to appreciate what comes through the spaces between those activities. What happens in the spaces is what really helps you to save a life rather than just experience it. And I absolutely savour each day and each relationship in a way that I've never done before. And it's so enriching. It's the one thing I'd want my 20-year-old self to have an earlier earlier appreciation of. That's a beautiful closing thought, Amar. Thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, I bought a copy of your book for one of my neighbours who is a GP, and she looked at the cover and said, Amar used to be my mentor. He's brilliant. So I know at least one person is eagerly awaiting this episode. Hopefully there'll be many more. 
And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at dampflask-consulting.com. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book on Amazon. And this episode was recorded in Sheffield using Squadcast, and the music was brought to you by 96 Pack on CPU Records.